Live hackers. Today we're gonna talk about lucid dreaming, about dream yoga, about sleep yoga. And some of you might wonder, what does it have in common with personal development, with getting reconnected with life essence? Some of you might even think that lucid dreaming is like selling air guitar on eBay for $5. And this episode should definitely change your perspective and your vision and your ideas about that. Lucid dreaming and sleep yoga are real tools that can bring substantial change into your life. And today we talk with Andrew Holochik, who is authority on topics that are usually not even touched or scratched by most people. He's working with dreams, he's working with death, and he's looking into pain. He touches things that most people are afraid of, and he actually brings the curtain up and he shows us a little bit what's happening there and why we actually need to do the same, why we need to pay more attention to what we do at night while we're sleeping and how it can transform our life. Andrew is one of my personal superheroes and I think this is One of those episodes that you should listen to at least twice. So, enjoy. Before we begin, I would like to share with you that I've created a page for happiness patterns on patreon.com and I've created a couple of cool gigs. As I have already shared, I've been on this path of personal development for 13 years already and I have tons of materials and I'm preparing several workshops and also a book is in process so you can get a sneak peek on what's happening and you can become a part of our community so patreon.com slash happiness patterns now the intro and then awesome andrew holacek on dream yoga Patterns of happiness are frameworks that always work. They are tools and practices that will bring permanent change to your life for better. We're not looking for temporary solutions. We change and transform. We practice what we preach and we're gonna share it with you here. Be careful because you can become seriously happier today. Thank you for your time again. Thank you. Welcome, my friend. Welcome. Yeah. For me, I, I know that you don't know me, but uh, the fun thing about audibles is that I can I, actually, in this particular case, I was listening to your voice. Oh, yeah. It was recorded with your voice. So for me, you're like a close friend <laughs> in a way because I, you were talking into my ear for quite <laughs> some time. <laughs> So I know you better than you do me. (laughs) Um, I was reading your biography and uh, one of the things that amazed me that uh, you were to be a biologist, a musician, a physicist, and then you finally became a dentist. Well, I started in music because um, I I got a scholarship to study at one of the best schools and I loved it. I I still love it. Um, But I also realized 
that I, while I had a few gifts, you know, I went to one of the best schools in the country and, you know, I'm, I'm up against people that are now genius uh, level international artists. And I quickly discovered, you know, do I really want to do this? Do I have the wherewithal? So I switched into the biological studies and then um, <clears throat> I came here to Colorado. I was grew up in Michigan, went to school in Indiana. And so I came to Colorado to study physics because I had this, this kind of spiritual experience that um, for some strange reason was kind of downloaded into some tenets of, of physics. Um, and so I came out here to kind of unfold and impact that and then realized that wasn't, like, I wasn't climbing up the right ladder here. You know, it was, I was looking for reality and I thought physics described it. And then after three or four years, I said, whoa, you know, this is not quite what I'm looking for. And then I entered this kind of dark night of the soul period. It's like, well, now what am I going to do? Um, and because my entire family is in the medical and dental field, I really said to myself, you know, out of just purely practical purposes, five years, get my surgeon's degree, and then I'll have the freedom to do what I really want to do. Um, and I don't regret that because it's provided a wonderful platform for all my other deeper studies and my passions now. And um, I'm actually coming back in my profession and working and specializing more in um, dental, I should say, um, sleep medicine, working with uh, sleep disorders like apnea, nocturnal bruxism, and the like. And it also gives me the opportunity to, to do a great deal of um, kind of pro bono charity work in, in developing countries. So I, I co-founded this organization called Global Dental Relief that works in um, five, six different countries around the world. Um, but, you know, my passion is is my writing and and my teachings and the, and the stuff that I'm doing around um, nature of mind and reality, you know, um, as the Buddhists talk about it, as it can be explored using the medium of sleep and dream. I mean, that's where my heart is and everything else just kind of supports that. But, you know, it's really principally because of the influence of my uh, family who are all in the medical field that I said, you know, I, I can do this. And, and it's given me some financial freedom. So it's worked. And uh, how many years did you work as a dentist before you actually set on a serious journey, on a serious <laughs> spiritual journey? Well, you know, I, I actually was on a, a serious spiritual journey since my 20s when I when I had this experience that I share in my dream yoga book. Um, I was 20 years, 20 years old, somewhere in my early 20s, 22 maybe, where I had this kind of breakthrough experience that I relate in that book. And so, you know, I started meditating when I was 20 years old, uh, doing transcendental meditation, and I had quite a uh, kind of a initial opening with that experience. And so I, I would say that my spiritual trajectory really started with that. And even further back, I mean, I could go back into my early teens when I was interested in the developing new age and so-called occult and mystical things, not really sure what I was after. I just knew there was more than this. And so, you know, I, I did TM that really changed my life. I had this experience when I was 22 that totally changed my life. And so I was on a serious spiritual path ever since then. You know, Buddhism came in, into my life in my late 20s. And that's when I really kind of discovered my spiritual home. Um, because, you know, immediately the word Buddha means the awakened one. That was totally resonant with what this brief awakening I had. And so the more I read about Buddhism, the more it just resonated with me. It was the only thing I'd ever come across that really described my experience. And that's very powerful. And so ever since then, my late 20s, you know, um, 
I've drunk the Kool-Aid. You know, I'm a very long time, very serious student, practitioner and scholar. I did a three year retreat. You know, I've read everything in print. And so it's, it's just a tradition that speaks to me. And, and while I take refuge as a Buddhist, I also realize no one has a patent on truth. And I'm a very deep study of what you may know, um, Demetria's integral studies. Um, the idea of using all the world's wisdom, traditions, ancient. Yeah, uh, ancient and modern. In fact, I'm in conversation with Ken Wilber. Uh, I'll be interviewing him on my website you know, shortly. He's a good friend of mine. And so I, even though I call myself a Buddhist, I always remind myself the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist, right? I mean, he was just somebody who wanted to wake up. And so I align myself with that tradition because like the Zen people say, you know, chase two rabbits, catch none. So I figured, well, I, I have a better chance of catching my rabbit if I commit to this one path. But I will take truth wherever I can get it. Um, nobody has a patent. That's why I'm a, stud, a student of neuroscience and physics and psychology and philosophy. I don't really care. It's like wherever I will find the truth. And even the Buddha allegedly said, wherever you find the truth, you will find my dharma. And so that's why I'm a very big fan of integral studies and drawing information and wisdom really wherever I can get it. Um, it just it just works for me because otherwise there's no, as you know, Dimitri, there's no one tradition, discipline or science that can explain everything. There's just no way. And so like, why not use all these incredible resources that we now have to look at things from all these kind of uh, multifactorial perspectives and different lenses? And I'm sure you resonate with some of that yourself. So, it does. And uh, when I was actually listening to your um, speech, let's call it a speech, one of the Ken Wilbur's events, I think. And you were quoting some of the Advaitist teachers. Yeah. So I, I, I got this idea that, uh, yes, you might not only stick to the Buddhist tradition, but you look around. Oh. I, I, I was recently in uh, India. I was uh, in Tiruan Malai. Oh, yeah. That's what... That's I, I guess you know the spot. <laughs> yeah, I've been, so. I've been to India, Nepal, and Tibet many, many times because of you know the, the charity foundation work I do. I've probably been there over twenty times, and um, I love it. I love that part of the world. Um, fantastic experience. How did your dream journey begin? How you, did it happen? Yeah, the 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 big pivot point here, Dimitri, was. Um, when I was in my early 20s, I, I had, and I believe I share this in, in the Dream Yoga book as well, I, I just had this quite transformative experience um, where my mind just um, opened, you know, to this new kind of dimension and new understanding. And, and part of what characterized that experience for me, two things happened. Um, with a kind of ferocity, actually, this, this kind of, you know, what they call metanoia, this opening was, was incredibly powerful for me. And two things were, were kind of characteristic of it. One was I started having lucid dreams every night, like almost nonstop. So I found myself lucid virtually um, the entire night or most of it. Um, and then sort of correlative to that was I, I also found my daytime experience to become more and more dreamlike, more illusory. So it was, it was at that point initially just exhilarating. It's because like I was awake in my dreams. I was starting to see my waking world is more dreamlike. And so dreams um, became somehow my gateway in. And then as I share um, in, in my book, what happened was I didn't have the kind of doctrinal 
um, infrastructure. I didn't really understand what was happening to me. And even though it was exhilarating for a little while, after a while, I started to lose my reference points. I started to lose grounding and reality. And instead of feeling like I may be waking up, I felt like I may be going crazy. And so um, because I lost a sense of reality, because everything became equally real to me. So like, where's my grounding? And so I kind of slammed the door on that experience because I started to freak out and then began this search to help unfold. Well, what exactly was this? What happened to me here? And that was the kind of the dark period of my life because I thought physics could help me and it sort of did, but not really. I started almost desperately looking for some bit of information, knowledge, teaching that could somehow explain what happened. And, and like I mentioned earlier, when I finally, almost by process of elimination, um, when I found myself reading about Buddhism, I just found myself nodding my head all the time. And so when I came across the Tibetan Buddhist teachings on dream yoga, I realized, oh my gosh, this is it. I've come home because here, here's a, a discipline that can utterly explain everything that I went through. And as you know, that's really powerful. And so ever since then, um, what you know, the nocturnal mind, as I call it, which is really, you know, darkness is just a code word for ignorance for the unconscious. I, I now consider myself, a, um, you know, you know what the word spelunker is. A spelunker is someone who likes to look underground. You know, they explore caves and darkness, and, and so I have this tremendous passion for darkness because I realize darkness. It's like in Kashmir Shaivism. This is another tradition I, I'm very passionate about. In Kashmir Shaivism, um, the work of Semaraja, you know, he says there is no darkness. There's really only light unseen. And so to me, the, the darkness actually obscures and hides real light, which is why, as you know, in, in the Tibetan world, the practices for sleep yoga, you know, learning how to become lucid and deep dreamless sleep, it's actually called luminosity yoga. It's, it's a way to discover the luminous nature of mind and deep dreamless sleep. And so in a very similar way, in the darkness of unconscious dreams, what a lucid dream is, a lucid dream is just a, what I call a lit dream. It's a dream where you've turned on the light of lucidity or awareness. And so for me, you know, it's like the nighttime mind, as it's represented in sleeping, dreaming, really deep meditation and, and death, has become kind of my passion. Because to me, it's like this incredible natural resource that's just untapped. You know, we're sitting on top of this incredible resource that uh, we kind of run away from because darkness is scary. You know, we were, many of us are afraid of the dark. But I, I have always really lived my entire life using the kind of maxim that if you really want to grow, you know, you follow your fear. You, you go into the darkness. You go into the places that scare you because that's where ignorance lies. And the only way you can transform ignorance into wisdom is by going into it. And so that's why I did my three-year retreat. That's that's why I do now what I call dark retreats in preparation for death. And, the, you know, everything else, all my writing and stuff is just a kind of a, a natural consequence of my exploration as a spelunker of the mind, you know, a discoverer of what's going on below the surface. So that's my, that's my riff. <laughs> <laughs> what is your night agenda right now? Uh-huh. I mean... How do you spend your nights these days? Yeah, so I, I do a form um, of sleep and dream yoga, lucid dreaming, every single night. And it's simply because without I, breaks. I... Without breaks. 
without a break, without even giving yourself a break, like a night of full sleep? Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, yeah, sometimes I do give myself a, a break because, as you know, Dimitri, you know, the, the Buddhist tradition has this wonderful image of, you know, this teaching of not too tight, not too loose. Lifehackers, here we had to take a break with Andrew because of the blizzard in Canada at that time. So we stopped and eventually we met to continue the conversation only like three weeks or almost a month afterwards. Uh, that's why there is no logical conclusion to that particular question, but uh, the conversation gets deeper and deeper. So please continue listening. So there is this whole concept of awakening in uh, all the traditions and in esoterics and in Buddhism as well. Right. Can you please share, how do you see it yourself? What is what is awakening really as being someone who is further on the bus? Yeah, that's obviously uh, the $64,000 question, isn't it? Yeah, so, so I want to plant a couple different things. One is uh, I'll say a little bit about my understanding of what waking up means. And then also um, to situate it within a more complete spectrum of total enlightenment, which includes things like growing up. So, but let's start with a waking up thing. And, you know, there's so many ways to um, kind of go into this. One is that, and again, within the context of dream yoga, lucid dreaming, we can use the what's called the example dream or the double delusion. And, and that's, in fact, largely what um, dream yoga is about. You know, you use the double delusion, the example dream or the nighttime dream, to gain a semblance and to extrapolate the insights into this primary delusion or so-called waking dream. Um, and so within the context of the nocturnal meditations, that's largely what we do is, is we, um, you know, try to, uh, develop a perspective, a lucidity, a level of awareness that allows us to see um, reality as it truly is. So one way to talk about this truly monumental topic is to talk about awakening as bringing appearance and harmony with reality. Um, and so the, the analogy or the image I use is here's, here's a reality Here's appearance. Appearance is what the way the world appears to be. The world appears to be solid, lasting, independent, i.e. dualistic. That's the way things appear to be. That's what it means to be asleep. Um, if you see the world this way, you are snoring. So <laughs> there's that's here's it doesn't matter which one you prefer. Here's appearance, here's reality. The journey of the path is to bring appearance and harmony with reality. And so reality, of course, is not solid, not lasting, not independent, not dualistic. It's, it's very similar, hence dream yoga, to the way we can look at the, our experience of the dream. Because when you're stuck in a non-lucid dream, you mistake the dream to be real. That's what constitutes a non-lucid dream. You think the dream is real. You're just going with the flow you're being buffeted around by the contents of your dream experience. And you suffer in direct proportion to that. And so when you become lucid in a dream, of course, all of a sudden your perspective changes. The appearances are still there. You know, the dream doesn't stop. 
Um, but now you see it in a completely different light. You penetrate through the facade, through the illusion, and you realize that whatever is rising in the dream is not solid, lasting, and independent. It's just a play of your own mind. And so in a very real way, that's what the Buddha woke up to, the, the you know, ultimate lucid dreamer. He woke up to the fact that if you um, see this world the way it really is, you will see that it's an expression of your mind. Um, that it's not separate from you, it's, it's not solid, it's not lasting, it's not independent. And so, again, so much to say here, my friend, but one, one kind of interesting um, interjection here is that what, what it's very interesting to ask, like when one, one wakes, when one wakes up in a spiritual sense, what do you wake up from and what do you wake up to? You wake up from the nightmare of reification. You wake up from the delusion of taking things to be real. That's what reification means, to take things to be real. That's a fundamental mistake. So when one becomes enlightened, you wake up from that to a dreamlike reality. It's the great kind of um, big joke. You, you wake up to a dream. You wake up to the dreamlike nature of reality. Um, you wake up to the illusory nature of this phenomenal world. And so, again, there's so much to say here, but that's one way to really look at it within the context of, of lucid dreaming and dream yoga, is that it has that same kind of, um, kind of liberating stance that when you wake up to this reality, just like you wake up from a lucid dream, you now have, you're no longer buffeted by the things in your life, you know, the forms that previously controlled you. You know, it's like Nietzsche said, you know, we are possessed by that which we feel we possess. The forms that previously controlled you, now, just like in a dream, you see them for what they are. You see through them. You see that they're just a projection, an imputation of your own mind. And that, that completely frees you. And so I think Tenzin Wangyal has a beautiful summary statement where he says, you know, this is a dream, I am free, I can change. Um, and so roughly it's something like that. Um, but to put it in perspective, and I think this is important to interject just briefly here, that in my experience, Dimitri, you know, the, as, as powerful as the path of waking up is, in my opinion, um, it's not complete. Um, if, if you don't include, and this, these are the terms of John Wellwood, that Ken Wilber and others now use. If you don't include the pro the, the processes of uh, growing up, then you're you're you can be stuck in all kinds of very subtle spiritual traps. Because mm -hmm. when you're working with with spiritual experiences and waking up in the classic sense, you're working with states of consciousness: um, waking, dreaming, deep dreamless sleep, and and uh, even deeper than that. When you're working with um, the other bandwidth, sometimes called the difference between vertical and horizontal enlightenment, then, you know, you have to include, in my opinion, a more complete integrated approach, which is the, the, the path of growing up. And this is really interesting for spiritual practitioners because um, you can, anybody can introspect and see states of consciousness. We know what it's like to be awake, dream, asleep. But the thing with structures of consciousness, which is, the, you know, where the, the great contributions from the West come, the developmental Theorists, starting from James Mark Baldwin, Piaget, Kohlberg, Lovinger, I mean, Keegan, there's back, there's literally hundreds of these very sophisticated Western thinkers that have utterly un, 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 unequivocally shown that all 
human forms grow through certain structures of consciousness. And so the reason this is so incredibly important is that you can think you have attained full-blown enlightenment. And you see this all the time, Dimitri, in, in the West, when you have so-called Western spiritual masters that have a genuine um, Satori, Kensho, Metanoia, genuine waking up experience. But they, they, they really don't realize that unless they remain in total silence, um, the minute they open their mouth, the minute they move, they have no choice but to express their awakening through their structural level of development. And these are really tricky because unlike states of consciousness, you can't introspect a structure of consciousness. You don't look at them. You look through them. And so this is, I say this because there's so many problems that arise from not understanding this. You know, so-called realized masters take um, a, advantage of their students and you have all these sex scandals and you have all these power abuses and you have all this other stuff. Um, I don't see any other way to explain it outside of the fact that state realization um, is not complete if it's not fully incorporated into structural levels of, of, of growing up. And so I'll leave it at that because, you know, I think we want to talk more about spiritual stuff. But I have to say that because it's so important. And if you don't understand it, you will find yourself in a lot of trouble um, because, first of all, your state experience will not be stable and then secondly, the minute you try to express it, you have no choice but to express it through your psychological um, structures of development. So that's a, in itself another really big topic. But anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, most of the listeners, uh, I hope they, they did read your book or listen to your really, really deep voice uh, in the deep uh, sleep yoga book but I, some still haven't yeah. and uh, can you please give a couple of brief sentences maybe just explaining why sleep yoga could be a great tool for awakening and just realizing and uh, okay so you mean so sleep yoga is a deeper even deeper than dream yoga so like it's not entirely clear what you're asking so the relationship of dream yoga to sleep yoga or are you, all, are you talking about sleep yoga as incorporating dream yoga within it? Are you talking about it as its own track or as part of just using the night for spiritual purposes? I actually meant like the night in general right now. Yeah, good. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, great question, my friend. Um, you know, to me, it, there are a number of reasons why I am so infatuated with the dark. Um, and right off the bat, I think it's, doesn't take too much introspection to realize that there's there's a lot of code language going on when you're working with things like uh, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, and the and the so-called nocturnal meditations. I mean, for instance, darkness is a dark is a code word for ignorance for the unconscious mind. And uh, I've I've heard some Christian Christian theologians say, you know, the night is not dark to God. The night is as bright as the day. Um, and so. When we explore darkness, the darkness of the night, or when we explore darkness altogether, um, there are a number of very powerful reasons why I think it's it's helpful to do so. One is that if you look at the nature of reality, darkness, uh, everything that arises, arises out of darkness. In a certain way, when you're studying darkness, you're studying origins. In the book of Genesis, darkness precedes light. Um, in In cosmological theory, they're conjecturing that before the Big Bang, there was just the darkness. We are conceived in the dark. You know, literally, 
you only have to go a couple of millimeters below the skin. You know, your entire body is dark within. So we spend nine months in the dark. Seeds germinate in the dark. Um, everything we do in so-called waking conscious life arises from the darkness of the unconscious mind. And so by exploring darkness, you're exploring origins. And um, when you come to do that from a spiritual perspective, first of all, you, you, it's completely revelatory. It shows um, how limited and restricted our normal ways of looking at, at mind and reality actually are, that we are you know, it points out a very powerful and subtle discrimination that, that whether we know it or not, we're all highly biased towards waking consciousness. Um, we're what's called wake-centric. And this wake-centricity, I'm writing a lot about it now, is also deeply connected to sight-centricity. You know, how it is that a third of our brains, a third of our brains is devoted to processing visual data. So we're hardwired to see in the day um, that's also connected to photocentricity, that we're kind of, we have this lust for light. Um, and so this is really helpful to realize because all these forms of centricity, egocentricity, photocentricity, light centricity, sight centricity, these are all subsumed in the service of egocentricity. So in other words, ego is really only fully operational and online in waking consciousness. And so when ego literally slips and falls asleep um, at night, it goes offline. And, and I have to say this, then what happens is because it's very much like when the nobility of science flips into scientism. And you know what scientism is. Scientism is when you take the methods of science and you pervert them and, and you basically dismiss any form of knowledge that science can't somehow witness or appropriate, which is ridiculous. Um, and in exactly the same way, this happens with the way we philosophically look at, at the nature of our lives, at the nature of mind and reality, where ego if, um, then comes to colonize and dominate other states of consciousness it can't fully experience, which is why, you know, unless you're a mystic or a subtle scientist, we almost categorically dismiss the subtle states of consciousness that are involved with the dark. We, we, we dismiss the type of consciousness that operates in the dreaming state, dream yoga. We dismiss the, the possibility of maintaining awareness in deep dreamless sleep, sleep yoga. And we, ego, dismisses that because it can't fully experience it. And therefore it says, pardon my French, it says bullshit. You can't have lucid dreams. Well, it's been scientifically proven since the 70s that you can. Bullshit, you can't have lucid sleep. Well, it's being now substantiated in laboratories that um, you can and so what this does is it, it completely, it's a paradigm changer, completely changes the way we can relate to mind. And, and in so doing, it can actually start to show us in a, in a profoundly humbling and, again, revelatory way. It's, that's the other thing that happens when you explore darkness is you reveal things. You start to see that, as many wisdom traditions assert, like Advaita Vedanta, Vajrayana Buddhism, Kashmir Shaivism, that we've got it all ass backwards. We think we're the most awake in this waking state. Uh, no, no, no. Um, we are actually the most asleep in this waking state. And so these, these um, disciplines that explore the night will eventually show us that if we are lucid to it, Dimitri, we are more in contact with reality when we're dreaming we are most in contact with reality and deep dreamless sleep. We've got it all backwards. 
And this is why Ramana Maharshi said so famously, that which does not exist in deep, dreamless sleep is not real. Um, and so by really exploring this, it changes everything. It shows us that when we come up and out of, of the darkness of, of sleep, we are actually falling asleep in the spiritual sense if we take everything that arises um, to be fundamentally real. And so th those are some principal reasons for working with these nocturnal practices. The other one that's really, really helpful and profound for me, similar to this, is that by exploring how the mind um, manifests in these subtle and then very, very subtle states, it's as if we're completing the picture of the way mind uh, consciousness operates. Uh, and and what, what I mean by this, Dimitri, is you know, most of us in the West, without even thinking about it, we have this kind of linear approach to mind, you know, we, and actually life. You know, we wake up in the morning, we get in line, you know, uh, online, we get offline at the end of the day, we get in line when we're born, we reach the end of the line when we're dead. And so we have this yes, no, black, white, on, off relationship to mind. Um, and that's really gross. That's a really gross kind of the analogy I use is like a light switch, you know, it's like on, off, yes, no, black, white. Well, these, these teachings and practices replace that light switch with a dimmer so that you realize, no, it's not just on, off, yes, no, black, white. It goes from gross to subtle to very subtle. So you're, you're, you learn how to dim consciousness from this outer ghost uh, waking state into full lucidity in the dream state, into full lucidity in the sleep state, leaving a few photons of awareness on. And in so doing, then you have a complete picture of the way mind works and the way reality arises from these expressions of mind. And this is not only completely a game changer when it comes to how you live your life, it's also a complete game changer in terms of how you die, which is why these nocturnal practices culminate in what the Tibetans talk about as bardo yoga which is literally the dream at the end of time, working with death. And, and really what the implication here is that by working with the mind in these 24-hour cycles, you realize those 24-hour cycles just recapitulate what happens when we die. Um, and so therefore, at the end of life, you know, it, death no longer has any meaning. You, you don't really die when you die. Uh, you just basically transition from gross dimensions of, of, of mind to subtle to extremely subtle states. And this is why, according to the Tibetans and Hindu and other um, very profound ancient wisdom traditions, if you gain proficiency with working in your mind in the sleep and dream state, you have uh, that proficiency when you die. You can transform a non-lucid death experience into a lucid death experience. And, um, you know, there's so much to say here. Even in Greek mythology, the, the god of uh, death is Thanatos. The god of sleep is Hypnos. They're not just brothers. They're twins. So death and, and uh, sleep and dream are intimately connected. So again, so much to say here, my friend. You have to kind of direct me where you want to go. But the idea is for me in exploring these, these practices and teachings for decades now it's like the farther I go, the deeper it gets, the more rewarding it gets, and the more complete it gets. It, it, it just gives me a much deeper understanding of the way mind and reality manifest throughout the entire spectrum of manifestation. And then, you know, really what it does then is it liberates you from this, because, you know, you no longer take this to be so 
heavy and solid and real. And, and I always invite listeners to, to do a little contemplation and ask yourself, you know, why, when, when you suffer, why do you suffer? What's the origin of your suffering? Well, I would, I would put forth that if you really take a look, one of the major reasons we suffer is because we take things to be so bloody real. Again, this original sin of reification. And so, um, you know, look at your mind. You suffer when you take your thoughts to be so heavy. You know, you're depressed because your thoughts are so heavy. Your life is, is miserable because everything that happens seems to be so real. But when you have these, when you're, you're equipped with these powerful laser beams of wisdom, you start to see through all these appearances. They're still there again. You're not getting rid of them. Everything still appears. But no, you're no longer fooled by the appearances. You're no longer non-lucid to the contents of mind and reality. You see it for what it is, just the display of mind. And then you're no longer a victim of your world. You, you go from victim to victor to Gina. You now have you know, control over your life and your world because you realize that you are not a victim of it. And so, you know, it has, these teachings have, and this is why there's so much to say here, they have profound philosophical um, importance, but most, most importantly, Demetrius, they have tremendous practical application. These teachings, they can seem somewhat esoteric and like, well, why, why should I deal with lucid dreaming, dream yoga, what can it do for me? Well, if you really want to take advantage of your life, you really want to wake up, you really want to transform and remove your suffering, you know, go to the places that scare you. Go to the dark side. Go, go to the shadow side of your being. Um, and that's where, you know, in this very precious limited time we have on this planet, if you really want to take advantage of it, you go into the dark. So something like that. <laughs> I really love listening to you because you picked up so much and you integrated so much from different traditions. And uh, when you share about dreams, it feels like it's a universe. It's not like one planet. It has so many sides. Um, one of the things that I picked up from your book, that I learned from your book, and I took it as a technique into my daily life, is asking myself, is this real? What you share in the book is that you say that um, if a person wants to develop the skill of waking up and making the dream lucid, uh, they can also look at every door and go through the door and ask themselves at this moment whether it's real or not, like to make this little anchor. Stay checked. Yeah, yeah stay checked. And for me, it really works. Like today, for example, I had this little friction with my wife and I was... I was getting really emotional, but then I remembered this question and it really sobered me. I felt, okay, it, 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 it's so trifle. It doesn't really matter at all. So, I mean, the emotion was real, but this, even this question in itself makes it really simple or at least a little easier to look from the side. Can you please share, I, you have plenty in the book and I, I really advise everyone to listen and to read the book Dream Yoga, but can you please share some tools that uh, listeners can pick up and just try today on how they can uh, slowly develop the skill for lucid dreaming and to wake up in the day as well from their illusion, from their maya? Sure, sure. Let me just say something very briefly about, about what you referenced with you know the little friction that you had. 
in the way you, you related to it. Um, this again, it shows you how practical this stuff can be because normally what happens when we get involved with difficult situations, let's say something like with your wife or I mean, goodness, it happens every day with how many people, um, you, it's very easy to, to pay attention armed with these tools and some of which I'll share with you that, you know, as you feel the energy coming up and you feel the emotions arising and, and very often um, there comes a tipping point where we lose it, right? We, we kind of give into the energy, we explode, we have a you know, big emotional upheaval. I mean, it's really, it defines most of our um, life, really. And when we talk about lucidity in its largest sense, it, it applies completely to this type of very world-worldly experience. In other words, if an emotional energy arises, or, or even a thought, it doesn't matter, but in, in this case, a charge, the emotional energy arises, and you capitulate to it, you get lost in it, you literally, sometimes we say, oh man, I just lost it. Well, what did you lose? You lost your lucidity, you lost your awareness. At that point, you became non-lucid to the contents of your mind. You took that energy to be so solid, so real, that it almost forced you to act from that space. That's what it means to be asleep. That's what it means to be non-lucid. You just lose yourself in this energy. And so by working with this almost video game thing, you know, lucid dreams, well, it's like this video game. Well, you know, it's a lot more than that. You wake up to the contents of your mind at night in, in the spirit of, you know, what scientists call bidirectionality, that what you do during the day affects the night, what you do during the night affects the day. What I have discovered here thousands of times is that when I'm doing my lucid dreaming dream yoga practices and, and the things I'm doing in my dreams, they don't just stay tucked under the darkness of the night. They don't just stay in my dream. They come back to uh, help me wake up during the day. And so what, what I mean by that is, you know, I, I'll get into a conflict with my partner and I, I feel that energy coming in, and I feel my habitual pattern to get lost in it. But then something will pop into my mind from my dream practice last night that will say, you know, OMG, this is no more real than the dream I had last night. And then just like my lucidity at night frees me from the contents of the dream, that insight when it pops up during the day makes me lucid and frees me from the contents of my mind during the day. And this is, this is what differentiates uh, lucid dreaming from dream yoga. Dream yoga is all about this. You don't just work with the stuff at night and leave it there. No, no, no. You take all these practices and they, they kind of dovetail back in and they start to affect your life. You start to wake up to your life using the practices that you do in, in the context of your dream. And that alone is, that's pretty enormous. That's no small thing. So I just wanted to toss that in because, I, you know, very often people say, why should I do this? You know, my life is so full. Why should I be bothered? Well, if you understand some of the reasons, you will want to be bothered, so to speak, because the applications and implications are so profound. But specifically to return to your question, um, Dimitri, Yes, there's a number of things you can do. And, and again, I start with what I talk about as my um, foundational techniques, or I talk about them as my super techniques, because they, they kind of permeate and set the stage for all the very specific techniques. 
And these are also the easiest ones to implement because you can do them during the day. Anybody can do these. And they kind of prepare this field of dreams. You may remember the movie with Kevin Costner, you know, like field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. Well, if you create this field of dreams, lucid dreams will come. Um, in Buddhism, they say the preliminaries are more important than the main practice. So if you, if you do the proper preparatory practices, lucidity is a natural consequence of that preparation. So with that said, the super techniques are, are um, first and foremost, perhaps, is intention, the power of intention, having a really heartfelt, strong intention to wake up in your dreams. Um, the word itself, I, I, like, I like to study word origins. Um, the origin of the word intention literally means to, you know, to stretch towards, to reach towards. And so by setting a very strong intention during the day, a very strong intention, especially as you're lying down in bed, you know, saying to yourself with real conviction, not just flapping your lips, but, you know, tonight I'm going to have many dreams. Tonight I'm going to remember my dreams. Tonight I'm going to become lucid to my dreams. It's like you're you're stretching the conscious mind into previously unconscious domains. And, and I've been to a number of dream yoga programs with, with uh, meditation masters where when they talk about lucid dream induction, the only technique they give is intention. Um, and so don't let the simplicity belie the profundity. Um, intentionality is extremely powerful. It's like a little bit like if you have to, you know, get up at three in the morning to catch a flight. You don't have an alarm clock. We've all had this experience. If you set a very strong intention, it's amazing how often something will stretch through the night and wake you up right at three o'clock. I mean, I've had this experience many, many times. So that's number one. Number two, very simple on one level, um, is believing, having the power of belief. You know, because we, we live in a wake-centric culture, we, we tend to be dismissive of cultures that uh, um, honor dreams. In fact, when we say, oh, it's just a dream, that's a negative statement. That's a, you know, the word is pejorative. That's a kind of dismissive statement. Oh, it's just a dream. And so uh, what we fail to understand that, you know, of, of the several thousand world cultures that there are, over 90% of these cultures have a very valued relationship to dreams. They believe in the dream world. They believe in the power of their dreams. And because of that belief, they have a much more elevated relationship to their dreams. Lucidity becomes much more common. Dream recall is much more common because they don't have this dismissive attitude that we have in the West based on, um, you know, wake centricity, all these other things that I talked about. And so, the power of belief cannot be overstated that, you know, if you really believe, wow, these dreams are amazing. Dreams really are the origin. I mean, that's things come up from this space. And you read the books and you do the research and you start to explore this for yourself. And you have this firm conviction that, wow, my dreams are really important. It's amazing. Then all of a sudden, lo and behold, you start to have more lucid dreams. You start to remember more of your dreams because you're believing in the power of your dreams. Um, and so that's a second super technique. And then the third one, especially for spiritual practitioners, and this one's really important, is meditation. Um, and many, many studies have shown that meditators have more lucid dreams. And it makes total sense, because when you're working with meditation, you're basically working 
to cultivate a more lucid or aware relationship to the contents of your mind, right? I mean, you're sitting in meditation and you're more aware. Thoughts arise and you're more aware of your thoughts, which is why very often at first people, when they start to meditate, they complain so much because they go, oh my gosh, I never had so many thoughts before. Well, yeah, you did. You just never saw them before. So you're becoming more lucid to the contents of your mind. And so if you become lucid to the contents of your mind now, you will become lucid to the contents of your mind when you dream. Um, and it's like Kabir, the poet Kabir, one set of death, also applies to dream. What is found now is found then. Or in our case, what is not found now is not found then. And so we are, if you, you know, the untrained non-meditative mind is non-lucid to the vast majority of what takes place in the mind. This is what it means to be another, you know, coming back to your original question, this is part of what it means to be spiritually asleep. We're just completely unaware of all the stuff that's happening in our mind. Um, and when you start to engage in meditation, you start to become exquisitely aware of what's taking place in your mind. And this is why, you know, for a meditation master, you know, the more you meditate, the more you'll have lucid dreams. For a meditation master, all their dreams are lucid. There's no such thing as a, a non-lucid dream in the mind of a meditation master. And so the little logic here, for those of your listeners who may be more logically oriented, it really, the logic is as follows. You know, thoughts are to waking consciousness as dreams are to dreaming consciousness. But it's the same underlying consciousness at play. It's just in one domain, it's thought. In the other domain, it's dream. And so if you become more lucid to thoughts during the day, you become more lucid to, to dreams at night. And, and I cannot tell you how important this one is. Um, and I noticed this over four years as a meditator. I noticed this when I go really into long, long retreats. You know, I started a retreat. Yeah, maybe not that many lucid dreams. But the more I spend time in, in, in retreat, the more my lucid dreams. They're directly proportional to my meditation practice. And again, if you really think about it, it makes so much sense. And so with those three techniques, um, intentionality, the power of belief, and meditation, you are really off to a fantastic start. And then from there, oh my gosh, you know, then it's the topic is endless. Then you have all the Eastern and Western techniques for things to do during the day, things to do at night, things to do when you're sleeping. I mean, we could have a hundred podcasts about this, you know, the waking back to bed method, the mild method. I mean, there are literally dozens and dozens of different techniques that are then like secondary practices after, in my opinion, you work with these kind of infrastructure practices. And so I mentioned these because anybody can do these, meditation, intentionality, and belief. Um, and then from there, all the other stuff they can read about, which, you know, would just take so much time to talk about, can be applied. You know, the substances, galantamine, the gadgets, the goggles. I mean, you name it. There are, there are dozens and dozens of different techniques that all work, um, you know, for different people. It's an uh, incredibly rich time in the world of lucid dreaming because there are so many, as you know, there are so many different methods that are very, very effective. So that's at least gives people a running start. It does, it does. A very primitive and primal question, but can you please tell what you mean by meditation? More like concentration technique? Great question. Yeah, that's a really great question. So the word meditation is a little bit like the word sport. 
you know, when you say sport, well, well what do you got? You got hundred different sports, right? And so when you say meditation, so great question, my friend. There are literally hundreds of types of meditation. And so, again, a really big topic, but very briefly, um, all the meditations are subsumed under two general families. Um, one are the kind of quieting, kind of sedating, you know, concentrative, concentrative practices, which, you know, in Sanskrit, the word is shamatha, practice of tranquility, mindfulness, um, and then the second um, family, a group of family practices are the, are the awareness practices. The word in Sanskrit is vipassana. Um, and so when I'm talking about meditation here, I'm talking mostly about good old mindfulness. Just entry level, over-the-counter mindfulness meditation where, you know, you work either with a mantra or a candle or breathing. You know, the mind just works to sort of rest around a particular object. We don't, in the Buddhist tradition, we don't use the word concentration that much because um, even though there are so-called concentrative or concentration type practices, meditation fundamentally is more about opening. Um, but initially when you engage in meditation, it's about just, you know, sitting, paying attention to your breath, and then just simply becoming more and more mindful of what's taking place in your mind. You know, seeing how your mind bounces around, you know, they call it monkey mind, how the mind is just tossed around by thoughts and emotions, you know, um, seeing how the mind is constantly just being buffeted around. Um, and then from there, from that basic infrastructure, mindfulness practice, then, then come the awareness practices. Um, you know, what, you, what do you actually do with that level of mindfulness? Where does it go? And I interject this because it's really important these days. You know, the mindfulness revolution is beautiful. It's a fantastic contribution. But it's also limited. You know, mindfulness alone will, will not liberate. Mindfulness is, is largely a type of pacifier. And that, I'm not criticizing it. It's great. It has its place. But it also is limited. Mindfulness alone will not lead to complete awakening. Um, complete awakening requires more of the awareness practices, vipassana practices. And so the nocturnal meditations, they work with both. They work with both mindfulness and awareness. Um, and, you know, fundamentally, we start with basic mindfulness. I'm sure most of your listeners have some understanding of that. And then from that, from that platform, then the awareness practices can be cultivated. Because otherwise, what happens is it's a little bit like racing down the uh, highway, you know, at 100 kilometers per hour, you know, you're, you're speeding so quickly, you can't really see. And so, Shamatha Vipassana Mindfulness Awareness, some of the language I use is stop and see. Stop and see. Shamatha Vipassana. You can't really see when the mind is just flying. Um, so, you slow down meditation. You, you know, basically, when you start to do that, then you start to see. And that's, that's where things get extremely interesting and, and, and liberating because then you're not just sedating the mind. You're becoming increasingly more aware of how the mind actually works. Um, so, again, these are really big questions, but I think that's enough to get you going. Yeah, yeah that's very clear. Last time you started sharing about building the temple at night, the dream temple. Oh, yeah, the lost temple of sleep, yeah. Uh, one of the things you said... It, it, it was really brief, but still, 
I didn't really get what it was about. So I think some of the listeners didn't too. Uh, you said that now you you are becoming lucid, and then you think now stage four, working with fear. What did you mean by these stages? Okay, so I'm hearing two things here. Um, the first thing about the temple of sleep and all that, I'll put that aside for now. So what I'm hearing with your second question, Dimitri, is yes, this again is one thing that differentiates dream yoga from lucid dreaming, is that in the classic dream yoga texts, there are stages of practice. And, and I outline these stages in my book. Um, the actual meditative texts are very succinct and pithy. They usually only give three or four, maybe five types of stages I unpack, I think, nine stages just to give more baby steps. And so the idea is with all these stages, and then I can be specific if you want about any stage. Um, the idea is that, yeah, once you become lucid, that's just, that's just stage one. I mean, now you're awake to the dream. So what? Well, if you're doing just lucid dreaming, then you do all the things that lucid dreamers do. Again, no criticism, but usually entertainment, gratification, you know, fulfilling your fantasies and that kind of thing. That's okay to a certain extent. Um, what many lucid dreamers may not realize is that whenever intention, here's the word again, whenever intention is involved, even at the level of a dream, habits are created. Karma is created. So, you know, you may indulge your mind in the privacy of, of your dream space, but it's not karmically tax-free. Um, you're creating habits, you know, using... Again, we can talk about the science behind it, using the tenets of neuroplasticity and all that kind of thing. You know, what you do with your mind changes your brain, even in the dream state. And so, um, to you know, in the dream yoga curriculum, waking up and becoming lucid, as big as that is, that's just, that's just the first step. Then there are all these progressive levels of evolution of practice, like what do you do when you're lucid? Well, we could, again, we could talk about this for months. You know, there are eight, nine different steps that people tend to progress through. They're not necessarily linear. They're presented in a somewhat linear progressive from, you know, more gross to more subtle, from um, easier to more difficult. But people bounce all over the place. So you don't want to get stuck by the linear um, kind of progression of these things. But it goes from simply changing, and I can talk a little bit about this, like, you know, like changing the content of your dream. Why would you do that? Um trying to put your hand through a dream wall, why would you do that? Um, transforming your body in a dream, why would you do that? Um, and so, yes, there's so much to say here, my friend, so maybe you can kind of zip me in a little bit more in terms of whether you want me to unpack one or two of these stages. But they, they go from, you know, relatively accessible to quite quite subtle and profound. So, Can you tell just a little bit about the first ones that are accessible for most of the people? Yeah, okay, so yeah, so the first one, of course, is just waking up into the dream and more lucid dreaming. You know, you just fly, you have fun, you enjoy. And I have to say, I still do this, you know? It's sometimes like I wake up in the dream and it's like before I go to work, I go for a joyride, you know? Because I wake up in the dream And I'll go, okay, what was I going to do tonight? Oh, yeah, so here's an important backpedal. So what I do, like, how do you set the stage for what you're going to do? So two orders of intention. First of all, I want to become lucid in my dream, number one. And then, you know, I ask for more um, because it's very, it, it's very interesting. I, I teach dream yoga programs and people come and 
And they go, oh my gosh, I had my first lucid dream last night. It was fantastic, but it only lasted like five seconds. And they're all kind of bummed out. And, and I go, well, why are you bummed out? I said, you know, no, what, what I, I ask is, what did you ask for last night? And, and they said, well, I asked to become lucid. And then I say, well, why are you bummed out? You got what you asked for. Now you want to ask for more. So, <laughs> so then what you do is you go, okay, I want to become lucid so that I can work with my fear so that I can do one of these stages. And so this is what I do, Dimitri. I wake up in my dream and I go, okay, what was I going to do tonight? Oh, yeah, tonight I was going to do stage five. But sometimes I'll go, ah, you know what? I don't want to do that just yet. I just want to have some fun. And so I'll just go flying around and, and do all the kind of cool lucid dreaming thing. And then at a certain point, you know, it's like it gets a little boring. Um, and I just say, okay, now time to go to work. So let's say, you know, for instance, stage one um, would be something like, um, I think it's my stage one. Yeah, pretty sure. Stage one is where you, let's say, you, you know, you want to um, change the content of your dream. Um, so it, it's actually not as easy as you think. In other words, so let's say, let's say I'm dreaming and I'm dreaming and here's, oh, wow, here's a dream pen. Okay. So I'm holding, you know, I'm holding a dream pen in my dream. And so the practice is I want to change this dream pen into a dream glass or, or whatever I'm dreaming. And this is nice because you don't have to change whatever dream you're in. So let's say, you know, you're dreaming and you're in a jungle and you see an elephant. Oh, okay. I want to change that elephant to, into a zebra. Um, and, and so you do this. You just work with transforming the objects of your dreams. And, and then you go, well, why do you want to do this? How is this helpful? Well, it's helpful in exactly the way we're talking about with your emotion. You know, if you work to discover the flexibility of your mind as it manifests in the dream, and you can change this pencil into the glass in the dream, then what you can do in life is you can change that anger that can seem as solid as this bloody pencil or whatever. You can change that anger into compassion. You can change your lust into um, simple um, affection. You can change your jealousy. You get the idea. You know, these states of mind during the day and even your thoughts, you know, you're up at night and you can't sleep because, you know, your mind is riddled with insomnia. Well, what's keeping you up? It's because you're totally caught up in the contents of your mind. And so by changing things in your dream, you realize, OMG, I can change the contents of my mental experience during the day. And that, that right there is huge. Because then when these heavy states of mind come and these heavy emotions come, they usually dictate the entirety of our suffering lives. You go, hey, wait a second. This is no different from that elephant in my dream last night. Uh, and what's also revelatory, and this is what's very interesting here, Dimitri, is with many of these practices, sometimes when you first start to do them, you can't do them. Um, and people get discouraged. They go, oh, you know, God, I thought it was easy to change this pen into this glass. It's not that easy. And so the, what I want to say here is really important. And that is that um, whatever takes place in the dream state is revealing. It's revelatory. That's why dreams are considered truth tellers, even in psychological circles. That's why the moniker for dream yoga is the measure of the path. Your dreams will show you where you really are. Um, and the reason this is important is you can use your failures 
to reveal places where you're stuck. And so when you first start to do this transformation thing, it's hard. But if you do it more and more, and that was like super easy for me. I mean, I, I can just change all kinds of things in my dreams. And it, it reveals how my mind is becoming more flexible, permeable, workable. Um, and therefore, I use that failure as a success to show me where I'm stuck. You know, it's like, wow, there's a reason I still get caught up in, in grudges, you know, and I'll hold a grudge or I'll keep a score for days or weeks on end. Well, why? Because you're reifying that thing. And now, you know, by doing this shit, your mind no longer gets so sticky. You know, our mind is generally really sticky. We glue onto everything. And this practice will show you how sticky our mind is. And then in a real way, you're trying to unglue it. You're trying to make it less sticky. And then when you bring that less sticky mind into your life, whoa, this is a big deal. Then you're no longer so sticky. You know, things just roll off of you, you know, like duck uh, water on the back of a duck. Things just don't land on you so much. So that's just stage one. You know, that's the kind of implication that you get from just this stage. And then, you know, there's seven, eight other stages that go very, very deep. But you get some idea that it's not just a video game in there. It's not just a virtual reality thing. When you're working with your dreams, again, what are you really doing? What are dreams made of? Dreams are made of your mind. So when you're working with your dreams, you're working with your mind in a very distilled way. And this is why the transformations that take place with these practices are really profound because they transform because you're working with such rudimentary levels, you're, you're really working with all, you know, it's like you're working, the analogy I use is you're working with the roots of your experience. And then the branches and the trunks and the leaves and everything else, they all change because you're working with the roots. Um, and that's why you can have these dreams. You don't have to have a lucid dream every night to be changed by your dreams because they're so foundational, um, even infrequent lucid dreams can start to change your life because they're working with such foundational levels of your being. That's so, real magic. Very practical form of magic. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> I was already in love with what you're doing in dream yoga and sleep yoga, but I'm falling for it again. <laughs> yeah. Cool. There's a lot here. And a lot here. What is nightclub? What is it for? <laughs> what is this project you're doing? Yes, thanks for asking. Thanks for the opportunity to pitch that. So, so Nightclub is something that we just recently launched. It's a, a subset of my main site. Um, and we launched it a couple months ago after working on it for like six or seven months. And, and what it is, Dimitri, is it serves a, a number of functions. One is, you know, I've been teaching this stuff for quite a few years now. Um, I'm about to leave for Korea to teach, you know, 10 days out there. And everywhere I go, it's so sweet. Everywhere I go, you know, people are into it, especially when they start to realize. It's like most people say, I had no idea there was so much here. And so once they start to catch the fever, you know, I do these programs. And then every single time somebody comes up to me and says, well, what now? You know, what can I do? Where can I go? Who can I study with? And for the last 20 years, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's literally nobody. Maybe Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche in Virginia but he doesn't do it very regularly. 
And so finally, this summer, after ha having this question asked to me like a hundred times, something clicked and said, you know, why not us? Why not me? Why not create a platform where we can support people? And so my club is it has two tracks, um, two main tracks. One is a kind of social support track. It's like, you know, I don't know if you know the, the site Reddit, but Reddit has like 230,000 people on their lucid dreaming track. That's a lot. Um, so that's kind of the chat room support thing. So that's, that's part, we have that kind of forum here as well. But then we have other tracks that are more, um, you know, like online um, trainings, teachings, like um, interviewing. I'm interviewing just a ton of experts. I heard this week I interviewed Ken Wilber for three hours and then um, Evan Thompson. I mean, some of the biggest, yeah, I've been in this business a long time. Um, and so some of the biggest names in, in the business um, have agreed to come on with me. And so I interview them and we create, you know, it'll take a while. We're going to try to do two, three interviews a month. Um, and so accumulate, um, you know, um, experts from all over the world as a way to cross-pollinate, to give thinkers like you, um, Stephen LeBears, Evan Thompson, all these amazing, Alan Wallace, all these other amazing thinkers, a way for us to develop this online community where we can help each other and support each other. And so conjoined with that, we, we also have, I do webinars um, two, three times a month where I'm just presenting teachings, somewhat like this, but more rigorous, um, lots of Q&A like we're doing here. And then we also have, um, in, what, in the back of the club, so to speak, we have what we call night school, which is um, kind of six different tracks um, going from a kind of entry level to really advanced. And they're all centered in the center is lucid dreaming. And then below it, so to speak, are the daily practices that support lucid dreaming. Next to that are, you know, the science and medicine of sleep, because I, I work a lot in sleep medicine in my clinical practice. So science and medicine of sleep, daily practices that support lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming. And then we have the other nocturnal practices, dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga. And so it's, and this is why I interviewed Ken Wilber, you know, who's the founder of Integral Theory, as, as my initial guest, because the, the kind of charter of this program, of this nightclub night school, is to provide a very vast integral approach covering all these different bases and showing people, you know, most people will come to the site because they're interested in lucid dreaming. But once they, you know, it's like the pebble dropping in the pond, once they realize all this other stuff that's there, it's like I had no idea there were so many things that could be discussed. And so we want to create a platform um, for guests to share their ideas. Robert Wagner is another one. I just interviewed Charlie Morley, where speakers can share. Um, our members can come online, ask questions, converse, converse with each other. And then, you know, uh, from there, we'll see where it goes. Uh, it's just a matter of what we call emergent design. We'll see where people want to take it, where it wants to go. Um, but there does seem to be more and more interest in this area, as you know, Dimitri. And so we're trying to just respond to that interest and support people because these nocturnal practices are very solitary. You're by nature, you're working, you know, with your mind in the silence of the night, pretty much by yourself. And so it's very helpful to know that you're not alone, that there are, you know, I'm not a role model, but there are role models, um, real masters in this area. And you realize, you know, I'm not crazy. I'm not alone. There are other people that really are interested in this stuff. And so then you develop this kind of Sangha community level. So, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to riff on that. That's kind of the charter of what we're trying to accomplish with Night School. Um, so, yeah, something like that.
I will join it tomorrow. It's closer to midnight here in Moscow right now, but I, I want to join it. You actually, <laughs> I, I've bought it. <laughs> you, you've sold me. Um, it, it sounds really exciting. Uh, well, one more thing. You also do workshops. You you do workshops regularly? Yeah, pretty regularly. Yeah, because, you know, I got a, 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 the book that you have, that you keep mentioning, the, um, the Dream Yoga book, that's actually the first of four books. So the, the second one is, is already completely done. It's in the hands of my publisher. Um, the third one, part of what I call my dream trilogy, I'm drafting that now. That's on the Lost Temple of Sleep. Um, and then there's another, a, more, a, a fourth book, kind of a more introductory level book on the art of lucid dreaming. It's a workbook type thing. And so I'm writing a lot about it. And I teach regularly internationally now. So I'm doing a thing in Korea. Then I've got a thing in New York. Then I've got a thing in uh, Europe. Then I got a thing. You know, I'm trying to do longer, like week-long events now, um, and so people can find out about that sort of thing on my main website. But yeah, I try to just uh, respond to the interest and in, in the curiosity of people who are exploring this type of thing. So yeah, all that stuff is available on, on my website, andrewholicek.com. So thanks for the opportunity to pitch that. So this has been a gas, my friend. Thanks for your patience. I know it's been a little bit hard to get together. But, you know, great questions. You're doing really cool things. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can see you at one of, one of these uh, gigs one of these days. I mean, nice to connect. I, I really, to tell you the truth, I have a plan to come to one of your live events, too. I don't know how to manage it. And I will check where you are in Europe. Maybe it's more possible here with sure. the baby and with my wife because we're traveling together. Nice. But, uh, yeah, I'm totally into this. Thank you. For me, waiting for this event, <laughs> for the second part of the interview, was totally worth it. I'm actually even happy that we had it in two parts because I had time to mature in my questions and to get more, really, the sense of where I want to move with it. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your time and uh, yeah, hope to see you yeah. in person. And yeah. I will definitely join the club. Terrific, Dimitri. Thank you so much. Best of luck over there, and, and uh, hopefully our paths will cross again. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.